Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode number 491, March 17, 2022, Time and the Virus with Adia Benton and Malka Older. And we're going to get right into the conversation. Let me introduce my guests briefly before we get started. Adia Benton is a cultural anthropologist at Northwestern University with interest in global health, biomedicine, development, humanitarianism, and professional sports. And she writes frequently on her blog, ethnography911.org, and on Twitter as ethnography911, connecting these issues with broader conversations about political economy, race, and gender. She's the author of HIV Exceptionalism, Development Through Disease in Sierra Leone, and many other articles and book in progress. Let me also introduce Malka Older, a senior writer, aid worker, and academic named Senior Fellow for Technology and Risk at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs 2015. She has more than a decade of experience in humanitarian aid and development. Her science fiction political thriller, Infomocracy, was named one of the best books of 2016 by Turkus, Book Riot, and the Washington Post. And she's the author of the sequels, Null States and State Tectonics, in her short story and poetry collection, and other disasters came out in late 2019. And both of them have been on as guests or hosted COVID calls, so they're not any strangers to the COVID calls community. Adia and Malka, great to see you. Malka, great to see you both. Good to, see you. Good to see you all. <laughs> so um, my pitch in inviting you to come on was pretty basic. Let's talk about time. Uh, very few people would even answer an email like that. Uh, <laughs> you both did. So I want to start with a, maybe a frustrating question. And Adia, I'm going to throw it to you first. Um, is this disaster over? <laughs> I mean... If, if we want it to be, I guess, is the answer right now. Um, that's, that's the, the thing we've been, we've been kind of grappling with. It's, no, it's not over. Um, but for some reason, where I sit, we're pretending like it is, or we, we feel like maybe if we will it into existence, it will happen. Um, and it's actually terrifying to see. It's like this sort of slow motion, pardon the disaster <laughs> happening. And so it's, um, you know, speaking of time and, and, and all of that, but um, no. And, you know, <laughs> and you knew the answer, didn't you? <laughs> yes, but I'm curious about how you, you know, right. I mean, how it is, and Malka, is to throw it over to you, but, but how it is when you even propose something like an end for a process, like, a disaster or a pandemic like the one we're living through. Um, it's a hard ask, but a lot of people are into it. <laughs> a, lot of people are, a lot of people are, they're like, yeah, the time, it's time. Time's up. up. Yeah. Right. It's like a night. It's like when the feature length film, like you're like, oh, 93 minutes is kind of the sweet spot. Like we, we're ready to go. It's time to throw out the, the secret yeah. serum and get it over. With. But, um, I'm sure Martha has. Yeah. I, I mean, first of all, I agree with exactly what you said. It's it's not over. Um, but there's definitely this temptation to like control these 
fluid categories by saying, okay, we'll, we're going to put a start and an end and we're going to, we, we ourselves are going to be able to announce. And of course I'm picturing the, um, the mission accomplished banner, the famous, mm. um, but also, you know, I, I always remember in this sort of um, context doing an interview in, uh, in Mississippi because I was doing my doctoral dis- research on uh, Katrina and this was uh, seven or eight years after Katrina and to me, as a stranger to the area driving around southern Mississippi, everything looked fine. But when I was talking to one of my informants who, you know, had lived through it and had lived there his whole life, he said, it's st- we're still not back to where we were. It still doesn't feel like like my home. It's not the same. It's not normal. Right. And so it really struck me the difference of perspective on this, because we're very committed in our society, I think, to both having these these categories that we can draw lines around, right? And that we have some control over, um, but also this idea of objectivity and the fact that like a disaster is over when in fact a disaster can be over for some people and definitely not over for others. And, you know, I think this disaster particularly, you know, at the beginning of it, I was thinking about um, the way people would talk about World War One the people who had a good war and the people who had a bad war, right? And the people who had a very bad war. And, and I think there's a lot of that concept here as well, that some people, people have very, very, very different experiences going through this. Um, and that also is going to color, you know, how they feel about whether it's, whether it's over, whether it's back to normal, whether it's over in, in a different way. Um, so, you know, I think that, that that subjectivity is something that we have to, get better at, at realizing. Um, and, and of course, there is also this assumption that disasters are brief. And that moving into the Anthropocene or solidly in the Anthropocene is something that we definitely need to get over because um, we're, we're trending towards a state of a kind of constant crisis. And to keep scrabbling after some idea of normalcy and an end and control is not going to be helpful for us in, in dealing with this. Adia, let me bring this back to some of the work you've done um, with HIV, AIDS in Africa. And did you see, I mean, you're tracking this in your research as well, where you have one sort of discourse of time management coming out of the capital of public health authorities, and then another one when you were actually in in the field and clinics and actually talking with disease sufferers? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Like one of the big um, things I've written about or written against perhaps is the end of AIDS, which is yeah. the, is currently the, the, the mantra is like by 2030 something, something, I think it's been, been <laughs> they're going to try to stop, they're going to prevent new infections, but I'm not sure how that's supposed to happen um, for a number of reasons, including the end of AIDS is um, not true for, it's a chronic condition for people who are able to manage it with the medications. There are people who will still never be able to manage it completely with the medications. The medications may change how people, how people metabolize the world. I mean, and so, so to talk about that, um, as to talk about the end of AIDS, it's a bureaucratic finality. It's a bureau, it's, it's something to be managed rather than something that is a, will be a reality for people who are, are living with 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 AIDS. Um, one thing I also wanted to say is, and this is maybe where I throw historians, on, medical historians, under the bus, um, is you know, like Charles Rosenberg wrote that sort of famous series of essays about 
what defines an epidemic? And he says, oh, it's dramaturgical. You know, he kind of says it's like an Aristotelian narrative, like there's a beginning, a middle and an end, a conflict, a narrative resolution, which sounds great when you're like analyzing shit that happened in like 1882 and you're like, yeah, it ended. But for whom? But for whom did it end? Like we, yeah, we even yeah, talk about yeah. it, like the Ebola outbreak didn't actually end for people who survived, who continue to have ophthalmological problems, neurological issues. And I was really surprised when people were surprised about COVID having similar effects. So new disease viruses are notorious for not really having a definitive endpoint. Like anyone who's had like um, post-viral cough, so to speak, you know, even that yeah. post, you got it for six weeks. You might not have a fever, but you're still yeah. not feeling great. So what are we talking about when we talk about the end? You know, I, again, like I think Malka said very beautifully, that narrative resolution that we crave, we being like people who like Aristotelian narrative or whatever, I'm like not into it. But um, <laughs> what, what, like, what are we, what are we doing? I mean, even our epidemic curve looks like that, that curve that we learn in middle yeah, school, yeah, that yeah. narrative curve we learned in middle school. Like, remember we were trying to flatten it, and I was like, flattening it's gonna look real fun. Five years down the road, when we're still in that, yeah, you know, right? So, yeah, I mean, one part of this to your critique, I think, friendly and well-meaning, but serious critique of the way the history of public health and the history of science generally has written about, you know, these about disasters. Um, it also, to me, it's it's sort of the problem of really talking about the creation of this modern state, mm -hmm. and so the the harnessing of the power of the of the the bureaucratic ability to get the word out, the scientific capacity to have experts to say it's over, and then the political will to stick by it when you know it's bullshit, is like this is how the modern state is concocted in lots of places, right? Mm -hmm. Can I say, I, I've been trying to figure out how to say this in a way that isn't like calling attention to. I went to a memorial service last on Saturday, which a lot of, a lot of famous people, including Tony Fauci and Rochelle Walensky. I'm saying it here so it could be in the sort of archive. I did have not tweeted to, about it. Did you invite them to come on COVID calls? Because I can't get them. <laughs> Right, I, actually, I also saw Ben Stiller. I'm not going to, I told him I loved his mom. So anyway, there's like this moment where I look at, I'm like, is that Rochelle Walensky? The reason I had to ask is because she was wearing a very tight, very secure mask. <laughs> I mean, of course, Tony Fauci was because he said he wasn't taking it off. Right. But it, it kind of, I mean, it was a requirement for the service, but I definitely saw them. I don't, I think that strong recommendation that's a part of the, the, the profile is, is actually what is supposed to be happening, right? Like, I think that's what I was trying to get at. I was like, God, I saw all, the, you know, I saw Bill Clinton, Bill, of course, Bill Clinton's wearing a mask, right? But, <laughs> but it just sort of gave me this sort of, this feeling of, you know, when you're talking about the modern state and the, and the sort of the political will to, to say it's over, really felt I felt in this I felt super conflicted in this space right um yeah 
I, yeah, I think it's it's a really important point because uh, I, I do think that there's this whole thing in the state of like uh, what can be controlled and what can't be. And the state is not very willing to, to, to say that things can't be controlled. Um, at the same time, though, since disasters can't be controlled or they wouldn't be disasters, uh, they need some kind of an out to say that, you know, oh, terrible things happen sometimes and we just... You can't do anything about it. Disasters happen, you know, act of God, uh, unprecedented, blah, blah. Um, and we manage it as well as we could. Right. And uh, there's and and in addition to that, there is a kind of um, there's a bit of rent seeking. Right. Because disasters have opportunities for making money and for accruing additional power and for making sort of expanding the state into a new policy area because disasters were not uh, originally really something the state dealt with at all. And now that they are, it offers them a lot of um, stuff <laughs> that states like. So, so this, this like tension between uh, we can control this and we're going to tell you what's going on and when it's over and, um, and all these things. And also, uh, but we, we didn't control it at all. Like there's this, this very, and I think that there's an existential sort of crisis there um, as well in terms of, you know, at two levels, at the level of like an administration that thinks if they mess up a disaster badly enough, they might get kicked out, despite the fact that the evidence on that is really shaky. Um, and also at the sort of greater state level, which is like, if we can't manage this, what is the point of having a state, right? Because a state comes from the idea of collective defense. You know, we think of that as military, but if a state can't sort of protect people from other threats, there's even though most, you know, most people don't think that way. It's not something that's particularly overt, but there is a little bit of like, what, okay, so what, what is the government then? So I think that there are all those elements that, that really push um, these very sort of skewed approaches to how they manage it politically and performatively um, beyond, and, and that affects the way that they manage it substantively as well. Because if you're determined to say mm -hmm. it's over and we've controlled it, then you're doing things like saying, oh, yeah, you know, masks are voluntary at this point. And it's 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 infuriating, honestly. <laughs> States, stop being stupid. Yeah, I mean, the, the COVID has been a continual chastisement to governments mm -hmm. in terms of time. I mean, Trump, you know, whatever. I mean, he declared the pandemic over before it reached the United States, basically. You know, and at various points early on, I mean, he made these very strong declarations. He put he put a, a date up there. I mean, he'd say it's going to be over by this day. And I and I remember thinking, well, no American politician's going to, you know, Trump is Trump. And and here comes Joe Biden. He says it's going to be over by the Fourth of July. You're going to be in the in the backyard with the barbecue. And and I guess I don't know. I don't want to be too defeatist or cynical about the, about this, but I do feel like to a certain extent. The, um, at some point, they just they're wrong enough that they're going to learn that it actually doesn't matter. That it's not going to. I mean, let me put it this way: I have been wrestling with this question about whether or not, if they managed it poorly enough, would they actually lose power? Do we have examples of countries where the mismanagement of a disaster, particularly around the timing of it, the slowness of it? has led to the dissolution of a government. And I don't think I can think of a case with COVID, but oh, maybe, no. Adia, you can. No. 
No, not with COVID. <laughs> not with COVID. But I, I think, I mean, that I was going to say, I think to some extent that's that's why we had well, some might some might argue that say the Sierra Leonean and Liberian cases were in part about disillusionment with or a sense of abandonment by um, the state, right? Mm-hmm. So that sort of the, the extent to which health and education were um, for, for, for young people became kind of a secondary concern of the state. And so some pe- that, that's sort of been the argument for like coup and civil war. But I think you, I think you might be right in the sense that, I mean, I guess the, ex- I've, I guess I've been trying to want, I've been wondering whether the sense of abandonment um, is widespread enough because there's always been this sort of contingent of, oh, social abandonment by the state is, is sort of a, it's a product of stateness, right? Like there's always going, like collective defense is not um, universal, yeah. right? And so, and in fact, the way that we, we manage it by, if, if we take sort of Marxist, some Marxist uh, abolitionist position is that the police exist to address the state, the war, the enemy within, right? Um, and so, I, you know, so yeah, I, I'm like, I'm going, yeah, to some extent, I think that's true. Is we're not at that point of, of a collective sense of social abandonment that is extensive enough to result in the dismantling of what we have. But I also, I'm also wondering what if, if it's coming. Um, I also something struck me about your the way you talked about Trump because I was thinking, isn't it interesting that the guy was on television every single day for hours? <laughs> like I watched, yeah. I watched them for like two months, and I remember yeah. it. But he was on. Uh, he was he was trying to control some kind of narrative. Yeah. I'm not sure what it was because it was kind of crazy. You know, like it didn't, it never really quite made any sense. But I was, I was sort of like, it's interesting how he, he actually came on television every single day to address these questions, which, you know, like a a good, good despot would have, you know, would have used it as an opportunity to communicate a series of messages about governance, about the, um, about how to govern this epidemic as as individuals because we're already on our own anyway right um, but yeah. I, it, it sort of struck me as like well what would what would a good version of that look like um if in fact this is about managing the narrative in such a way that an end really actually looks like it's near even if it's not you know, like, yeah, or, or or that control is is actually within the like that that the controlling and managing an epidemic is is actually something that they appear to be invested in, right? I love, yeah, Malka. Let me go ahead and give it to you, and I, and I want to talk about Governor Cuomo for New York. I'm a, I'm just going to notch that for a second. We'll come back to it. What were you going to say, Malka? I was just going to say like it's really extraordinary to me with these people. Um, these despots, as you say, and, and, and others that they don't take actions. And like, you know, there was so much talk at the beginning about the Defense Production Act. And, um, you know, there's so many things that could have been done, uh, in terms of like, uh, aid to people who couldn't go to work and gosh, 
uh, I did a whole Twitter thread a couple of times about like what I would do for economic recovery and just like train people in online stuff so that restaurants can get online easier and other businesses can, can do better online. Like they're off anyway, give them, you know, give them training in that downtime, pay a bunch of people to do that. Uh, figure out, you know, if people do have some immunity, give, make them be the deliverers. And I, you know, there was so much stuff that could have been done. And it's really interesting to me that like these easy wins to me, I think they're fairly easy wins still have so much resistance and inertia of like just making them happen. And you would think that the way to point towards an end would be to take actions. Uh, but, oh, um, but yeah, I, I think that's what you make a really good point. And actions are, actions are expensive. I think that's, I mean, just to, to draw some me. of this, I, draw, like, well, no, no. Yeah. Is there a war now? I just really like, well, I, just, I know, I know. I, <laughs> Well, no, what happens if you send your kid, like what happens, see, I think one of the issues is when you start thinking control, you stop thinking about care. And there's so many times that I would talk to people and they would be like, I care about someone or or the collective. This is what I would do. And I was like, oh, that's such a great idea. (laughs) um, And it's something that I, I I think we, we struggle with, right? Like that, that sort of, desired so action sounds like a muscular caring is also an action it it is and and you know what i keep coming when you when we talk about like the expensive part so now I'm, i'm thinking about the war context right and i keep coming back to this thing that like we are so much more willing to send this incredibly expensive armaments places or even send people as soldiers to places to fight a war, which is just expensive on all these different axes, then we are to accept refugees into the country, which costs basically nothing. And like long-term is generally a benefit to the economy of the country. But, you know, going back to World War II and continuing on and every conflict through then, it's like so much easier for these people to, to to commit to like really expensive but muscular uh, war actions in other places than it is to like care for people and accept them in, even when they're using the suffering of those people as the excuse for going to war. Yeah. And I think that's really reflected in what we see in this disaster as well. You know, there's much more willing to be yelling about things than um, that, that, <laughs> Or to do things that are really expensive. Um, And, you know, I mean, I'm I'm really glad that they put a lot of money towards developing the vaccines. I'm extremely glad they did that. But there were all these other much less expensive things they could have been doing at the same time. They just didn't sound as exactly as muscular, as um, scientific, as modern, as we're in control of this. I'm thinking about the um, a couple things. I mean, one is like thinking back to that point you made about Trump a minute ago. Idea that that it was Cuomo in New York was doing the same daily daily thing. 
but he was approaching it more in the as uh, there was still an uncertainty in it. I mean, it was like a daily kind of like, you know, it was like a pep talk kind of thing. Trump was doing his own thing. Trump kept saying he loved his ratings. That's why he kept doing it. And I thought, you know, and there was a sort of a, like a mini moment there. You remember people like, oh, Cuomo, Cuomo could be, pre but stop thinking about him, but he's really rallying people and he's, he's dealing with the uncertainties of this. And then we find out he's writing a freaking book that talks about how it's, Again, so declaring victory over this thing in the summer of 2020. So he's playing the same exact game, except he's just sitting at a table and doing it with a different locution than Trump, who's standing at a podium and injecting himself with bleach. But they were actually doing the same thing. He had PowerPoint, though. You know, like he had, there was a logo and a color scheme. <laughs> I had, I, I, <laughs> that alone elevated his game like this game his, his his communications game he had like that blue and yellow that was like that didn't use a sharpie that's <laughs> i i'm i'm super into the whole like spectacle of politics but um oh i, I mean i've just been thinking too like about how we've even been using these sort of military metaphors you know, I, Cuomo actually did say he had kicked, what was it, we kicked the virus's ass or something was his, it was something like that. They either kicked, it was something very like Bruce Finally. Willis, 1980s, yeah. whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, he's of that era. So the, I just, I, you know, <laughs> even using those things to mobilize, to mobilize a particular kind of response. So we did actually have, those military ships, right? We did have those things docked off the, I mean, this also happened with Ebola. So it's sort of a funny, yeah. um, but you couldn't take people who had Ebola onto the ship. Like it had to be for all of the other cases. So I think that was the same thing. This, this New York case was, this was for the non COVID cases because they don't have like the proper ventilation or even the, the correct expertise and machinery to, to do that kind of intensive work. Um, but it, it, to me, that was a, a, a kind of like the materialization of that, that set of ideological positions, right? That, that this sort of high priced, high priced, high tech intervention was somehow going to help when it in fact was about, again, protecting certain interests and not addressing the problem of, overwhelmed ICUs or overwhelmed um, clinics, overwhelmed care caregivers. This and so what, that... Yeah. Yeah. This and, is what... You know, have you read Mary Dudziak's book, Wartime? No. I don't know if y'all know that book, I, I but I mean... Yeah, it's a good book. I mean, she... I mean, she, exactly what you've both been saying. I mean, she sort of talks about how um, after 9-11... I mean, there's a formation of a sort of terror, anti-terror state and and there's a sort of longer tradition of carving out a special chronicity about war. Mm. And, and even in democracy, certainly in, in non-democratic states, but even in democracies, I mean, that's been one of the hallmarks of American presidents is to be able to declare war. You tell it, you say when, it's, when it begins. Mm -hmm. And even if it's, if it's messy and it doesn't look like it'll ever end, they still retain the power to... There's the, there's the logistics and the supply chain and the flow of material and the, the money, the flow. There's a, a sort of sense of time within it and it becomes a sort of separate 
time. And I think maybe it's completely, this is helping me see why the, those war metaphors were so powerful to people instead of care metaphors. And we have plenty of care metaphors that we could have used for a freaking pandemic. But the war metaphor actually invokes a different mode of time, I think, in which you can fail, but still it's bounded. And people still accept it somehow. I think I'm generalizing out of bounds here, but I don't know. It's, I don't I know. Think, what do you think, Mucker? I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. And especially because when you think about, if you read, you know, somewhat older works, the idea of illness as being out of time is also a really powerful one. Um, and the idea of like convalescence and a sort of um, blurred time of a fever. But that's something that we've lost, uh, really, um, both because of various medical advances or public health advances, actually, a lot of them. Um, and also just because we don't talk about illness that much um, or write about it in the same ways. Uh, so, and I also wanted to make another point there, which is, um, you know, when we talk about the expensive and the high tech, it's reminding me very much of when I worked with international non-governmental organizations responding to disasters. And when we were writing a proposal or a budget, it was much easier to put something very expensive um, into the budget that was uh, something tangible and something that would end up with something you could take photos of, as opposed to putting in more staff, because staff counted as operational costs. And it was all about the proportion of program costs to operational costs. And so, you know, I think that that, and it, it comes back to, I think, a lot of the ideas around quantification and like what we can measure and what we can uh, check and new public management, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, these ideas that we could buy beds and ventilators and not worry about the nurses and the doctors, um, you know, the idea that we could ignore the human element of it, uh, of the care and even you know, I mean, I think the same goes for the war metaphor in terms of, you know, do we worry about finding more soldiers or do we just think, well, if we put a draft in, you know, we'll get perfect soldiers right away. And, you know, never mind the problems of finding people who can meet the physical requirements and the people who, will, you know, so that I think that there is this other thing, which is about like assets, thinking about seeing everything in terms of assets instead of people. It's interesting that you said that because the ventilator issue was actually the issue. Um, my spouse is a intensivist, a trauma surgeon who's also a, and so he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm the only person who knows how to run the, like, you know, or I'm one of the few people who can actually run this whole process. So that means that during this, even though I'm basically hand, supposed to be handling like gunshot wounds and car accidents, I also will be running the ICU, you know, and so there's like a kind of, um, that, that sort of came up quite a bit, you know, they're like, oh, in Africa, there are only 10 ventilators or whatever. And it's like, yeah. And how many people are there to, um, to, to operate them? So, you know, it's interesting that you say this thing about the budgets, because I was thinking about how all of those, there's this other, those metrics of efficient, of NGO efficiency that always looked at, is this an operational cost? Is this a program cost? And that gap, the bigger, the smaller the gap, or the big, actually the bigger the gap meant the better the the organization. Oh, they only put, they put 90% towards this operational cost is actually how they talk about it. And, you know, I was, I, I've obviously been thinking a lot about this um, also from the perspective of, of illness and, and efficiency, this sort of how that logic sort of scales up 
and becomes more important than yeah than, than investing in the people or in, in, in and thinking about people um, in a way I but I'm sort of it's interesting to think I'm like trying to think about it in terms of this war metaphor too or or the, the militarization piece um like is it better to get a bunch of iPads that you know that that map I have a story actually there was I I knew this guy who was working for the CDC during the Ebola crisis in Guinea and he said that they had this conversation about um they they wanted to do these sort of mobile labs so that that more people could do diagnostics quickly so they could you know isolate people and treat them earlier because earlier treatment meant um, and so I think earlier treatment meant better chances of survival. And so these mobile labs were like this big. But um, USAID thought that mobile labs were really big, like trailers. And so they were like, well, it's fine. We'll give you the money for these mobile labs, but we have to put our label on it. And so they <laughs> they bought these massive labels that would fit on like a trailer and <laughs> discovered that the mobile labs were like box sized. And so they, so CDC had, oh gosh, I don't know if I should even be telling this story. It's like probably blowing up all the government agencies. But <laughs> CDC had these massive logos, logo magnets <laughs> that they couldn't do anything with. <laughs> that is like. That's a spinal tap story. It's like. NGO story, 100%. Like that is so familiar to me. And I, I just want to say too, like, there's a sense of which that operational program thing makes sense, right? Because a lot of NGOs have beautiful headquarters and stuff, and that's nice. Uh, but I really wish you didn't have to impress donors or whatever it is that makes you need that. Um, like, I, you want people to have a comfortable place to work, but like, there there are things that are worth measuring that way. But the fact that people were always in that, you know, even when we knew that the program that a program that had, you know, a bunch of people teaching other people how to do stuff was better economic development than building a freaking highway. Um, we still, we, we can do it. Um, I also want to bring in one other thing from sort of NGO or, or disaster worlds to talk about the time thing, because one of the, you know, we, we compare the pandemic a lot to things like earthquakes and hurricanes and but you know the, the the slow onset comparison, and it's debatable what, where the pandemic falls in that. But the the other comparison is the the famine, right? And we have this famous dictum um, from Amartya Sen that there are no famines in democratic countries, mm-hmm. and which is you know it's a little bit debatable. But he went through the evidence and like there's 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 something there, right? And that really for me raises the question both around the pandemic and around climate change of like, what are we doing wrong that we are not demanding accountability uh, in our demo- in our pseudo democratic countries in the same way that we would for, that we presumably would, maybe at this point we wouldn't even, maybe, you know, it would be a fake famine and people would be like, no, I love eating grass or whatever the situation would be in the U S if there was, gosh, I, it, that is not science fiction. That's not science fiction. Okay. Let's, let's not have it happen. But you, you know, uh, you understand what I'm saying? There's, there's this mm-hmm. idea that certain things people notice and they're like, okay, you know, this is, this is really a logistics problem and the government should be managing this. And, 
have some kind of democratic accountability behind it. Uh, I'm thinking what you asked earlier, too, about governments mm -hmm. that have been toppled for, for disasters. Um, so why aren't we thinking about that for, for the pandemic? Why aren't we thinking that way? Why isn't there that accountability for climate change? Yeah, I mean, can, can I just come back to like you both were talking, you kind of laid out two tracks of this earlier at the top around the subjectivity of time and disaster and that that there's the the one that I think you both have written about documented beautifully, which is the subjectivity of, of people who are disenfranchised for any of a thousand reasons. And so their time of disaster or illness really just it just hasn't historically just hasn't even been counted. If it's ever if it's ever conceived of by elites, it's it's conceived of through artwork, through music, through things that become anthropology in a museum of the experience of some other person, right? But it's not. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So there's that piece which um, is part of the answer, I think, to the question here. But there's another piece which, when you brought up long COVID, idea, and so people with plenty of money. Just like people with plenty of money are being affected by climate change, and people with plenty of money will be um, completely, you know, destroyed in a nuclear war, but they're also getting long COVID. Now, let me say something potentially naive, but also hopeful about this, which is that if enough powerful people are struck by a disaster that messes with their sense of time, that potentially becomes a ground for some sort of intervention in that, I think. But it has to be constituted as a political issue instead of just a whole bunch of, as it is right now, long COVID is still a series of anecdotes. Like I don't see political formation around it yet, but, but maybe, and we do have examples, I think in the history of disease and medicine, where something becomes, because it affects elites, it starts to gather some sort of political will around it. Okay, you see, even the way I'm ending this sentence is like, right? You know, I think talk there, me down. I I find it really interesting as well um, because if you remember, gosh, now I'm blanking on the name of that, but you remember that mosquito-borne disease that was affecting Zika? Yes, thank you. I can't believe I forgot that, but that just shows you how time and pandemics are, are messed up. But you know, I, someone asked me during that why governments were responding to that so differently and so much more aggressively than something like um, dengue, which was endemic in a lot of these places and had the same mosquito. And my very cynical thought, which I didn't mention, was that dengue, you know, you, you recover or it kills you. It, it can also have long-term effects, but generally um, we don't hear about them very often, right? Generally people think of it as, you know, it kills you or you recover. And this was something that would cause long-term effects that potentially would need care from the government. And so my very cynical idea was that governments were seeing this as a long-term cost. And that's why they were responding so aggressive. I could be- Babies. First of all, we had babies. The second thing we had was, and it's babies and disabilities. So there was ableism. Yes. There's exactly. that. So they, they, they were going to be costly down the road, but there was also the Olympics. Remember, we had yeah. Brazil hosting the Olympics and they thought, so Zika is like a, it's a fairly old disease. Um, there's like a one amazing little research station in Uganda that had been studying it for 50 years or something when this came up. So they were kind of like, okay, guys, we're the experts on this. But the, 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 the interesting part of that story was they traced Zika in Brazil to some like 
international boat race in the Pacific, in the South Pacific. <laughs> and I know, right? It was, I know, it's, wow. it's so cool, right? Like, it's, it's sort of like interesting science fiction as well. But um, it's sort of like, so the concern there where we were having these sort of two major international sporting events, you know how the Olympics and all and the World Cup already do the kind of damage that they do in the countries that they're in by displacing people, sort of development stuff. Um, you know, it's it's sort of a, and I think that was also a part of it. It was this idea, you know, it it, it affected tourists, it affected these major international sporting events, and then there were babies. The sort yeah. of the sort of um, ableism reared its ugly head. Like, what happens if a bunch of like white women who go down to like Brazil for spring break or whatever are suddenly having babies or athletes from Russia yeah. are suddenly, you know, are having, um, that did affect some women ath athletic participation, women's athletic participation, if you're trying to have a child or, or like all of these things. And I think, I think there was that, it was very like visible and clear as a mm -hmm. long threat. And, but right. I, I'm wondering like what it would take for the, the, the longer term right. health threat. Because again, like there seem to be all these economic calculations as opposed to human calculations going on. And mm -hmm. so think that that would be that that would spur more policy um but then again since the state in the u.s at least has mostly abdicated uh economic responsibility for long-term health issues or disabilities uh, maybe it's not such it's a really hard to see it because like this is a, a problem of some people might look at what we're seeing as a problem of preparedness i think preparedness is over kind of over <laughs> like i don't it's oversold yeah i don't think that there's there's some kind of preparedness that you can do, but you can't stockpile for a disease that doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, like that's just the way it is, and that and that's that's what this would have looked like, I think. Um, but uh, uh, what I guess I'm also saying is this idea that there's a long horizon mm -hmm. for government thinking and governmental planning. I think is has changed significantly, right? Like we're not in that position to to kind of think what might be the long-term implications there will be economic modeling there yeah. will be i you know like I, yeah. we, will, and, we will have that but we don't but whether that translates into something is another. Question. and probably pretty good wargaming i mean i remember like some of the best early like government reporting about climate change impacts in the united states was written by the u.s army and by the right. marines i mean it's again it's like and screenwriters yeah <laughs> right. <laughs> they, right didn't didn't yeah. they now, I have to, I, I've gotten, we got so into this, I didn't even do my my job, which is to like, just tell people you're listening to COVID calls. We have a few minutes left. I want to just take the prerogative of asking each of you this this question. We've been talking about a lot about external things, but I wanted to ask you sort of one personal question for this this time, which is just, um, and about time, is, um, are you comfortable writing about COVID? How comfortable are you writing about COVID? I mean, because, yeah, I mean, you've written a lot about sort of time and ethnography and the time it takes to sit with something and the possibilities of remember, forgetting and then remembering things and working with memories. But there's also this urge still right now to produce. And we're, we're all three in academic systems too that put a lot of emphasis on production. And, and so I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying the problem of it, but I think it's, it is a real problem, the sort of, 
need for us to make sense quickly. And by doing that, we're going to be kind of already deciding which data sets are interesting, which narratives and voices are important and should be privileged in this time. So I guess I wonder how you're thinking about, about that. Or are you going to sit this out and the, and your, your COVID book is coming in 2030, which is cool. It's fine. But I think there's going to be a lot of pressures on both of you to, to have it come out faster than that. Um, well, I, I, I don't, I don't have a lot of pressures, um, personally, because I'm not in that kind of cycle of academia and I, which I feel grateful for. But I'm going to turn this around a little and say that I remember in, uh, March, April, 2020, that I had this idea of something I wanted to write, uh, more like an, an, a sort of op-ed level of something, which was, based on my experience of disasters and it was about how it feels like it's super long and there's going to come a moment at which it is over and when it's over that's going to feel like it happens really fast even if it doesn't and that it was important for us to think about the things we wanted the changes we wanted to make and the sort of um you know the opportunities to rebuild um, while we were in that feeling of being long, because it's too easy to forget the disaster when it's ending or over. Um, so I wanted to write, you know, I had this idea of writing it and I, <laughs> I couldn't do it. It was a sort of emotional thing and a superstitious thing. And like, I couldn't write about the ending at that point. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, I feel like it's still a kind of accurate, in some ways, like we've talked about how it's not ending, but also, you know, the ways in which things, certain things are ending feel like they're happening incredibly fast, right? And I think the people who are coming back into normal, it's very easy to sort of be like the same way that the pandemic took over our lives and perceptions in spring 2020. Uh, the, the idea of normalcy, whatever it ends up looking like, is going to take over very quickly once it, once it happens. And so the, the importance of like kind of uh, taking some of the things that are that we are learning from this. Oh, it's so infuriating how little we are learning and changing based on this. But anyway, yeah, it was it was it was the opposite problem. It was like I had something to write, but emotionally I was too close to it to be willing. To, <laughs> I think I wrote a sentence and then I just couldn't. Um, and I did write some other op-eds later, a little bit later in the pandemic, about various things that I was seeing. And you know, it's gone on long enough that some of them are. Uh, like, I, I don't feel like they're wrong at this point, but they do look very different from here than they did then. Um, it's definitely something that is evolving. And, and so I think there's some, there's, it's worth having some of that type of caution that you were talking about as well, um, to it. But, you know, at the same time, I'm going to go back and say that I think that those perspectives are still valid because, Again, we tend to see everything from this position of now and look back in hindsight, but there's a value to the the thinking and the analysis and the emotions and the writing that we can do in that moment, even if it changes later. Adia, let me give you the last word on this. Oh, so for some reason it froze and disappeared. So that's why I was like, oh no. Um, I I struggle in the same way Maka did. Um, and so just kept producing other things. <laughs> it was like, um, and, and I remember that terrible feeling in March where I was saying goodbye to people um, with the sense that I just didn't 
know if I would ever see them again in person. Um, and, you know, yeah. And so I guess all of this to say, um, I still needed the time to process, but I think writing a book about Ebola, um, <laughs> which is what I have been doing for the past couple of years has allowed me to kind of think with, um, you think with um, this thing that happened in the past and actually continues to cause um, problems with people who can who live with in the in its aftermath. Um, it, I, I, this is the last thing I'll say because I know we actually have to run. But um, a, like maybe a year or two ago, I said something to Paul Farmer about like I said to him, "Yeah, I don't even know if I really want to write this book anymore." And he goes, "There will be another." <laughs> It was actually three years ago. He says, there will be another. So you might as well write the book. And I just like, yeah, I'll just, (laughs) that's like the, I think probably the, 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 the the last, it's probably like the last thing and probably the worst thing to end with, but it was, you know, now that it's right. It's now that. But now that I'm, you know, in the position of memorializing him and, and his life's work and all this other stuff, like it's sort of it's the one thing that sticks with me is that I kind of yeah, like, fine. yeah, got to finish the book. <laughs> um, so. Uh, let me just remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and um, uh, we'll be um, a- aiming towards the launch of the digital archive tomorrow and moving quickly towards the 500th episode, which will be tomorrow. And. Let me thank my guests at the Benton and Malka Older for your like extraordinary generosity to this project and also for this amazing hour. Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Scott, for this extraordinary project. Thanks, Scott. It's been great. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time.